my ideas were my identity and performance was my identity. When that didn't work, when I was constantly told that I was wrong, it would just make me really insecure and doubt everything and just not feel good about the job. I was not good at hiding my emotions either. The team would feel there's something wrong and I just wouldn't know where to let these emotions go because I'd be told like, hey, you need to be strong for the team. And then in the end, it would just be me crying in the bathroom secretly. And then, you know, they're kind of like, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm great. Hello, and welcome to the Delivering Value Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Kaplan. And if you're new here, this is a show where I chat with people who lead cross-functional growth teams, not about their wins and playbooks and success stories, but about the challenging adversity that comes with the job of being a head of growth and leading a cross-functional growth team. Super excited about my guest today. It is Daphne Tideman. Daphne has been in and around growth teams for the last eight years. She was the first employee at a company called Rockboost, which is a growth agency. She was there for over five years, was part of their journey from five to 25 employees. And then she went in-house to a company called Heights in the D2C space and was part of their journey from 28K in MRR to over 340K MRR in just 18 months. She knows a ton about growth. She runs a newsletter that we'll link to in the show notes. She posts on LinkedIn regularly. And what she has done recently is now she works as an advisor, basically working with people who lead growth teams at D2C companies. She's on her own like myself. So I was super excited to have Daphne on because of her experience and her pedigree. And in addition to all of those impressive things, she doesn't just talk about her highlight reel of wins and successes. Daphne talks openly about the challenges that come with working on growth teams and about growing a career in the growth space. In our combo, she shares how she got blasted at a presentation and how she handled that, how she navigated getting her ideas blown up in a public room. It was a honest and a vulnerable conversation. We also spent a lot of time talking about things that she would do differently, mental models that people can use if they're going through similar situations. We covered a ton of ground. I know you're going to love it. This episode is brought to you by Nevatic. If you follow me online, you know how much I believe in the interactive demo space. And that's because if you work at a product-led company that has a free trial or a freemium motion, what you see is usually a high percentage of those new users sign up, poke around for a few minutes, but never really use your product in a meaningful way. It's really frustrating. And when you survey these folks, usually they'll say, well, I just wanted to see your product in action. I'm not really ready to upload my stuff yet. And I saw this happen firsthand when I was at PostScript and at Wistia. And to solve this problem, we created an interactive version of our tool, an interactive demo. We put it on the website and we saw how effective it was to activate more signups and convert more free users into paying customers. If you're looking for help doing this yourself, check out Nevatic. They have a no-code editor to help product-led SaaS companies create and build interactive demos that increase conversions and activations. I recommend them all the time to my advising clients, especially right now as resources are tight and every new account matters. If you're interested in learning more, check out nevatic.com slash value. Want to take a second and thank Mad Kudu for sponsoring the show. The average SaaS business has a hybrid motion these days. You know, when I was head of growth at Wistit and at PostScript, although we called ourselves PLG, there was a sales team at both companies. Both companies did some outbound. We did inbound. There was the product-led freemium or free trial motion and wrangling all that stuff to understand lead scoring and quality and PQL routing is a bear. And when I worked at PostScript, we had a Stanford PhD, had a PhD in data science, one of the smartest people I've ever met, spend weeks and weeks and weeks putting together this insane predictive model using our behavioral data 
to understand who was likely to convert and to upgrade. And it took weeks of doing this. We weren't really able to adjust it after the fact. And it ended up being something that was hard to maintain. And what's great is that now there's these whole suite of tools out there that can help you do this way faster. So Madkudu is typically the one that I send my clients to that if I had in my previous world, those head of growth would have made my life way easier. And what's nice is that they balance the hybrid motion really well. So if you're trying to wrangle PQLs, PQAs, and figure out lead scoring across your hybrid model, check out Madkudu. It's where I send my clients. I think I'm one of the few people who actually started in growth at that time. So about eight, nine years ago, I think most people now who end up in growth come through even like product or marketing or sometimes more data route. But I was actually at a bit of a crossroad myself that I had really debated whether to do a marketing master's or finance master's. And they were so different. And everyone told me the marketing master's was too easy for me. And that I was setting myself short doing it. And I also struggled with the fact that it was very qualitative focused and not quantitative focused. And all my best figures were in the finance subjects. I was tutoring finance. I'd always got really great grades in math. So I was like, well, why would I fight what seems to be the right route? And so I went into finance and investments. I think there was less than 10% women and all the guys showed up in suits and all they cared about was money and big banks. And I was like, I'm completely out of place here. It doesn't excite me. But at the same time, the software side of marketing didn't interest me either. And I ended up during that master's being on the board of an entrepreneurship association. So our whole focus was getting students in startups and I was doing the marketing for them. And I was really enjoying that because I could take my own approach to it and use my financial side of it to see what was working, what wasn't, and seeing how we could promote these events and create things that people really wanted and get them to it. And so I had these two sides and I was like, I don't want to go into the finance world, but I'm not sure about the marketing either. It was really a serendipity moment because I actually was too late to sign up. And then I emailed the organizer of this advertising event and they had this growth hacking agency attending. And I happened to be in their group. I happened to win the case for them. And I was like, this is so cool. This is like data-driven marketing was what I thought it was at the time. And now I'm very careful not to break growth and marketing, but it felt like this combination of these two sides. And so I just stalked the founder, just emailing him again and again, trying to get an internship until he finally replied and let me come in. And then an hour later, they called me and told me I had the internship. So I started out there in a growth hacking agency and being their first full-time employee after my internship. That's super cool. I actually thought the same, which is that most people come into growth from either the marketing side or the product side, and then you end up in a more cross-functional role. But I've chatted with two folks on this podcast, in addition to yourself, that started their whole career in growth. One is Natalie from Nevada. She started as a growth hacking intern, similar to yourself. And then I had Liam McCormick, who works in growth at Mad Kudu, who has spent his entire career in growth as well. And so it's super cool. Is there a pivotal moment or person that got you into the space or impacted your journey a little bit? There was three co-founders of Rock Boost Agency I was working for when it started. And one of them was solely focused on Rock Boost. The other two had another agency that was on the dev side, so a digital agency. And Chris Al, who I'm still very close with, I think he really got me excited about it. Seeing him talk at that first event and then learning from him as he was also learning about the space and challenging each other to keep learning faster and faster. And he's one of the fastest learning people I've ever met. I think he really had a huge impact because I don't think I would have found a space without him. 
I also don't think I would have got as enthusiastic about it if it wasn't for like his enthusiasm through it all about the fact that we were onto something before it was big. It felt like at the time I was really struggling always to explain what growth was. And back then we even called it growth hacking. I don't really call it that anymore. But now it's more than norm. Do you notice a difference between people who started in growth or people who've come from a different space? I don't actually know. I think it's a good thing for the space in general that you can have a career that starts in growth and then continue in the capability and layer on new skills. I think one of the challenges that I felt when I was growing up in the space is that people didn't know what it was and whatever side of growth you came from, you had trouble breaking into the other side because people were like, well, you're a marketer, stay in your marketing lane. And it was like, well, I could do more. I have this approach and KPIs that I could impact with other tools at my disposal, not just marketing channels. And I think that that's the biggest difference is that those folks break down that barrier faster from what I've seen. Yeah, I can definitely see that. Like I've never felt more marketing or more product because I've had the chance to work with both teams and to be able to impact an organization from both sides. But I've seen it with a friend of mine who has more of a product background and wants a more round role because she sees that you can't just impact it from one side, that it's hard to break through when it should be the case that it actually is great to bring someone from that other perspective in because they are probably going to have a different approach to the rest of the team who might then be more marketing focused and that it doesn't necessarily need to be a bad thing that their skill set lies somewhere else, especially if you want to move your organization from more marketing-led to product-led or vice versa. It doesn't happen as often, but could be. And so you said you've been working in and around growth teams for the last eight years or so. How many different growth roles have you had during that time? The short summary is five years at Brock Boost, just under two years at Heights, and then the last year being freelance. The reality is it feels like I've had a million roles because I was working with clients as a consultant in the first role and I was doing workshops. I was leading the team, so I was helping people with other roles. It felt like a lot of different roles. But on paper, it was basically going from intern to growth hacker to a growth team lead to basically leading the whole consultancy team and being the operational manager of the day-to-day of Brock Boost because the founders were more focused on sales and the bigger vision side of it. And I was more with the day-to-day dealing with everything. They used to call me a horse, like head of random shit every day. I think it's something that a lot of (laughs) growth people end up feeling like. I used to refer to it as jack of all trades or the team that's like where it doesn't fit and you give it to the team, the horse. Yeah, I like that. I've heard other people talk about it on the podcast. I think also because as a growth person, your knowledge is quite broad. You very naturally go to where there's a need to support whatever's holding the organization back. You tend to focus and zoom in on that. So it feels like your job title can change quite often. And Chris, my previous boss, was like, okay, you're ahead of processes. Okay, you're ahead of this. And it was never really an official title, but more like, hey, this is something that's really important. But yeah, that was those three roles. And then at Heights, I joined as head of growth because I really wanted to see the brand side and also work with a company that was close to my heart. Rockboost had grown substantially in the time I was there and the clients were getting bigger and bigger. And that meant that there was a lot of clients that were less what I was interested in, so B2B, but also less in line with my personal values. And after my father had also passed away, I had this feeling in myself, like I really want to do something that matters and makes a positive impact in the way he did. And so it was really important for me when I was looking for this brand side, I was looking for something that had either a positive impact on either the environment 
or on individuals. And it's the same now with my clients. I only work with eco-friendly or wellness brands. I love that. Something that resonates with your personal values to find that alignment. It's a gift to be able to do that. A lot of people I speak to are quite scared to do that when they're a freelancer or when they're looking for a new role. They're like, I have to take what I can take. But I've actually always had this belief that by saying no to these opportunities, the chance that you find the other opportunities is actually higher. The number of people who reach out to me now specifically because they know I'm specialized in this, they know I've worked with similar brands, is a lot higher than I think it would have been if I hadn't had that criteria. And I think it also just builds trust and authenticity when you're interviewing somewhere that you say, I'm only going for this kind of brand because this is important to me and this is what matters. I think it's easier to say than to do, but it is a really important thing to think about. What do I actually want and being willing to say no or walk away when it doesn't match it? And there is an occasion, I'm not going to lie, there are 5% of clients who don't fall into that category. And it's usually because they're either friends running a business who I want to help out or like they're a really interesting puzzle piece where I think, hey, maybe they don't match that exact definition. Like I did some work around growth teams for a company that helps match developers with companies in a way that they can really see all the different opportunities and find good matches. And I was like, this is helping people in another way. I really like the founder. I really like the challenge of switching from a sales-led organization to a more growth and product-focused organization. So I did end up taking that opportunity, but I try really to be critical of it. And the amount of times I do that is just less and less and less as it goes on. It's a gift to be able to choose. And the more narrow your focus, the bigger player you become in that category, right? If you're in that category and you're looking for someone to help you, you are the best choice when you create a market like that. So you've got a ton of experience. I follow you on LinkedIn. We'll link to your LinkedIn in the show notes here. You've got a great newsletter. You share a lot of the growth team game and scaling. I'm curious to know maybe one of your early mistakes that you made as part of your growth journey, because you've shared a lot of things that have worked and you've got a really impressive career, but I'm curious to know about some of the non-highlight reels that probably don't make it to social media. I really do try to also share the non-highlights in what I do. I think my approach is definitely messy reality of growth, really trying to share what I've done wrong and also what hasn't worked and what are the hard moments, because I think it's really important that we talk about those and that it's easy to share the shiny things. There's been a lot of mistakes. There's been a lot of tears along the way. If I go back to Rock Boost really at the beginning, I think one of the biggest challenges for me was confidence. I had been bullied at school for a very long time. And so I didn't feel very secure myself. And I almost ended up bullying myself or looking for bullies around me who weren't necessarily bullies, but I would just look for where they were putting me down and take that on. And so that made it really hard because I was very young for the role I had. And I was just running, running, running as fast as I could, constantly learning, barring two books a week, trying everything to keep up and show that I knew it. But at the same time, I was very insecure in it. I was having management meetings where it was only men and me. There was an additional managing partner who came on at Rockboost at a later stage. So they were four men. And then the head of ops was a guy, the head of design, head of dev. So I will be in this room with seven guys who most of them had at least 10 years my senior and the ones who didn't were very confident. And in those moments, I just really struggled sometimes to feel like I could voice my opinion. And I had it very often that I would say something and feel like they'd push back on it and not 
agree with it. And then someone else would say with more confidence or certainty or in a different way, and it would work. I found those meetings really frustrating at times. And I think what I really learned from it and saw was that learning to understand what way to resonate with someone. One of the ones who would often say no, he just really had this rebel profile where he would always say no at first, but then fear back. So not letting that deter me, but also making him feel like it's his idea and being like, hey, you mentioned this and you mentioned that. And I saw that you really wanted that to change, trying really to do it more that way, but also taking the time to get other people on board with it before the meeting and having the shared front that it didn't feel like, hey, it's me trying to convince everyone, but really bringing people on board ahead of time and testing ideas. I've learned a lot about that now, but at the time I found that really, really hard. And I think sometimes the mistake I made would be that I'd be so determined to get something through and feel like my ideas were my identity and performance was my identity. That when that didn't work, when I was constantly told that I was wrong, it would just make me really insecure and doubt everything and just not feel good about the job. I was not good at hiding my emotions either. The team would feel there's something wrong. And I just wouldn't know where to let these emotions go because I'd be told like, hey, you need to be strong for the team. And then in the end, it would just be me crying in the bathroom secretly and then kind of like, I'm fine, I'm great in front of the team. And I think that's also something that was maybe a mistake in the sense that I thought I could hide it and not feel it versus actually working through like, why am I feeling this way? And what's the underlying reasons and things I need to work on versus just trying to dim it down to be strong for the team. So there's a lot of different things in there. <laughs> I'm pausing because I'm just reflecting. I feel like anyone who's worked in a growth team or around a growth team has been in that situation where you've been in a room and you share an idea and your ideas are your identity. So to share one of those is a pretty vulnerable and scary thing to do. And I can only imagine what it would be like in a room when you're more senior and it's all men and you're a woman. I think everybody's been in a similar situation where you shared an idea and you're feeling really vulnerable and it's been chopped down or dismissed and how shitty that feels. I can only imagine for you, especially being a little bit more junior, because you probably are telling yourself, am I crazy? Am I just wrong? Am I not good at this? Is it me? This has happened a couple of times now, so I'm thinking it's me. How did you work through that? How did you let that not stop you? Because there's a lot of people who I chat with who have hit a moment like that and said, fuck it, I'm out of here. I'm going to switch. I thought this might be a cool role for me, but clearly this is not it. How did you not do that? There were a few things that really helped with this. One was just really doing the work on my own self-esteem, going to therapy, trying to understand what was causing it, rewriting my underlying rules of how I treated myself, how I saw myself. Two was having these passions and goals outside of work, making sure that not everything is based on work. I think too early in my career, like everything was about work and my dad passing was such a pivotal moment for me because it was really unexpected and out of the blue, but it really made me evaluate how important it was and challenge myself to also try to enjoy life now because he passed at 61 before when he'd spent his whole life working to his retirement and just as he was about to buy his dream house it all slipped away just realizing like hey life is short and like end of the day this doesn't define who I am and I saw at the funeral and no one from his work came and that wasn't because he wasn't good but because he worked all over the world and the people who were there were his lifelong friends and I think that also was a really big thing, focusing more on things outside of work. After he passed, I started training for a half marathon to raise money for the Heart Association. Then, of course, I got injured because I'd basically fallen off a climbing wall, wrecked my ankle and just started running too soon. But even though like, I didn't make it, I think having these goals 
is so important. And also having these moments where you fail outside of work, at work, and seeing them as these opportunities to learn and better yourself and to push through, I think is also really important. I've always tried now to make sure I have goals outside of work, whether it's taking on a challenge, training for a half Ironman, learning Spanish because I'm in Spain for a few months. I think this has really, really helped with it. But also getting less caught up on it being just about the idea, but accepting the fact that there's a certain amount of soft skills around it. And one framework that's really helped me is this idea of a joint goal. Like often we clash heads with other people and feel like our ideas are dismissed, but we shouldn't be focusing on the ideas. We know as growth people that actually ideas should be the last stage and that it's actually about what is the underlying opportunity? What's the underlying issue? And what is the underlying goal of where we're going to? So I think one thing that also really helped me was working together with the founders to think about like, okay, where do we want to go to? What's the goal? What is the problem they see? And rather than getting pulled up on a specific idea that might not work or might work, can we first agree on what the goal is and then talk about different ways of solving it? And then it doesn't have to be my idea or your idea, but rather an idea that solves us underlying issues. So starting with the end goal in mind, finding common ground. Before you start jumping into solutions and strategies and ideas, it's going higher level than that. Seeing if you're aligned on the mission and what success looks like, getting some momentum and alignment there, which makes the next steps a little bit easier. And that was one of the things I heard you say a few minutes ago where you said, hey, when I was in those rooms and my ideas were getting challenged or maybe shot down, one of the things that I learned was to almost use like idea inception to make it related to something else that they had shared that was really important to them. I'm curious if there's advice for folks who are listening who might be in similar situations where they're in those rooms, they feel conviction to run an experiment or have a strategy that they think might work, but their ideas are getting chopped down. Is there other advice or frameworks that you found to be helpful that we could share with them? Definitely. So another thing I found helpful is speaking their language. So I think as growth people, we always believe the data talks. I've always remembered this one interview I had with someone who brought on that rock boost and actually ended up leading one of the teams. She was absolutely incredible individual, Benton. She said in this first interview, she was quite a shy person. I was like, okay, how do you commit clients? And she used to say, oh, I let the data do the talking and I used the data to convince and I realized I was doing the same and I thought it was a really great way for her to find a way to be able to convince. And I think what I've learned now is that yes, the data can do a lot of the talking and it's a really great way to get over that confidence and show it. But it's not everyone's language. You have these three different types of persuasions, pathos, logos, ethos, and some people are driven by more logic. Some people are driven more by emotion. Some people are driven more by reason. And we often think with these high level people, if we show them the data, they'll believe it because that's our language and that gives us confidence and gives us our voice. But that might not be what resonates with them. And I work with a lot of smaller scale startups and those founders are often actually driven by these authorities, what are other authorities doing? So I use examples of what worked at Heights or other clients, or I use examples of well-known companies that I know they love and respect in the space. And the same with founders who are more emotional led, who I've seen too, telling them, showing them the recordings of someone struggling, getting them in a user interview, telling them the story of a customer and why you think this is actually a problem could work better too. So it's thinking about which of these languages and which of these ways of persuasion actually are the right one for the person in the room and learning to speak their language versus speaking your language. I always treat it like I do with growth. I'm very focused on who the end customer is and how they're feeling what's important to them, 
what their goals are, what they're trying to achieve, like what's their job to be done. And I do the same with the people I'm working with. I try to think, okay, why is this very rational for them to do this? What is their job to be done? What are they trying to achieve? And that also can take away a bit of the emotion because like I know when a founder is putting pressure on me, the whole reason they're putting pressure on me is because of the investors. If I understand what their investors need and give them the right tools to be able to show them what we're doing and how it can help them, then that pressure also relieves. It's these different languages and just also treating them almost like a persona customer, if you will, who are they and what matters to them. I love this advice. This is such good advice. I didn't learn this, but I was lucky enough that I had a mentor who like hit me over the head with this because I'm the logic and data, one of those options. And I just assumed what you assumed, which is that everyone else was the same as me. And when I was trying to make a case to invest more in our user onboarding flow at a time when we weren't doing it, I shared all this data and retention charts and conversion graphs. And basically the room looked at me and said, so what? And then I did something different based on the encouragement of my manager at that time. I created screen recordings of 10 ideal customers signing into our product, getting frustrated, lost, distracted, hitting bugs, leaving and not coming back. And I did it in a room with executives and it was uncomfortable. It was tense in the room. People were physically upset. You could see it. And what you shared, I didn't know at the time, but I was communicating in the wrong way for the way that my executives like to inherit information. And that unlocked a lot of stuff for me. And that's what I heard you say as well. I think that's the perfect example of it. If you're trying to get them to invest in SEO, showing them that they're ranking lower than competitors, sometimes we forget that they're just humans too, and they have emotions and they have ways of working too. And I think understanding how they're showing you things can teach you what matters to them. And you also said something that I think is really strong. You said, so what? And this is something that my founder at Heights used to do to me all the time. Whenever I would present the monthly reports, he'd go, so what? And it annoyed the hell out of me because I was like, isn't it obvious? <laughs> but I started doing this with all my presentations and all my like documentation. I'd go through it all. And if I couldn't tell you strong enough, so what? I'd either focused on the wrong things or I hadn't gone that extra level of why does this actually matter? I don't know if you did it intentionally gave a framework that people can use of just when they're trying to Minutes before they even show it is thinking, so what? Why would they care about this? The feedback that I got is to take that so what. I used to put it as the last slide and then move it up to the first slide so that you start with the so what. And it's like, hey, I'm going to share some information in this slide deck. Here's why I'm sharing it. Here's the takeaways and the conclusions that I've come to from this information. Here's what I want to do with it. Now, here's the information. And I found that that works way better. And I learned this the hard way because... I did the opposite of this. It was at a quarterly business review and I was sharing some takeaways from last quarter and how it influenced our approach for this quarter. And I got blasted and I was in front of the room and I was just taking questions from all the executives in front of like 40 people. I hadn't had breakfast that morning. I'd had three cups of coffee. I was already nervous to present everything. And I had a panic attack in front of the room. People didn't know it, but that's what happened on the inside. And that's a day that stands out in my mind as like one of the worst days of my professional career. I'm wondering, that's obviously an extreme case, but like, have you ever had a presentation and had it just been completely blown up before? Oh, for sure. Yeah. It's also where you build it up. And I can imagine that was the case for you too. Like the reason you're having free cup is the reason you built it up so much and how it's meant to go. And then it's all dependent on this one moment. It's almost the equivalent of 
doing a huge marketing campaign in one go versus experimenting, testing things, validating things before you actually run that campaign and then expecting it to work and the shock of then doesn't and like, what do I do now? I had a similar case where it was the end of year presentation. It was me, the head of op strategy and one of the founders of Heights. And he'd asked me to really reflect on last year, what went well, what didn't go well, show like moving forward what our strategy was going to be. And I spent hours and hours and hours putting this all together. One of the things I really believed in really strongly was that we didn't quite have product market fit yet. And that the reason why was because the people who loved us where we did have product market fit was like a way older demographic, way different needs to what we were communicating. But we wanted to be this young, hip brand who focused on these younger people. But for them, it wasn't always the right solution because it was a kind of all-in-one supplement. It's a brain supplement, by the way. And so I worked out this whole explanation of that and drawn out channel, model, market, product fit, and explained how it was for these different audiences and what we could then do to solve it and what the roots were. And I just basically got the reaction at the end of it that he was really, really disappointed in what I presented. Why did you think he was disappointed in how you presented it? He literally said, I'm really disappointed in this. I had expected more. I was just there like, I think it was in the call because I remember, <laughs> this is there, I just stopped crying. I just was like, remember crying the rest of the day. Like, and it was, I think it's, and I think like I had worked so hard that whole year to grow heights and there'd been so many challenges along the way that I built this up in my mind of this is really great. But I got so focused on what I believed was the right thing for growth that I didn't take into consideration enough, like, what was he looking for? What was his so what that he wanted to get out of it? What was he expecting? I don't think he very much explained what he was looking for. It's not clear what he wants. And like my automatic tendency then was just to be like, okay, well, I'll figure it out and I'll do what I think is right versus really pushing what is actually you want to get out of this presentation? What do you expect? Running ideas by him ahead of time. And also thinking from a founder perspective, again, like he can't go to the investors and be like, hey, we're two years later. We spent all this money. We don't have product market fit. That doesn't go. And end of the day, does it even matter? You know, I got so caught up on this definition of what growth should have of having product market fit versus not versus thinking this is a really hard product to change. It's a physical product. Yes, we should have changed it long ago when I first brought it up, but we didn't all right, how can we move forward in a more positive way versus trying to get them to actually admit it? Because the other founder admitted it to me in a call separately after that. He was like, yeah, we don't have product market fit. I was like, no one else has admitted this. That's the thing. One bad presentation or one bad approach, it doesn't mean you're bad at growth. It's so easy to get caught up focusing on all the times you didn't do it well. And there is a million times that didn't do it well. And I think that's just part of our nature as growth people. We want to grow. We want to challenge ourselves. But I've also just started since then having a folder of all the positive feedback that I get. And whenever I have these moments where I feel like, hey, I messed up, I'm always like, what can I learn? But also just taking the time to acknowledge there's also a lot of things I do well. And that's, you know, also good to take in. Such a good practice for anybody. I did some research on this. I'm going to misquote this if anyone has done deeper research. But in psychology and in therapy, there's automatic negative thoughts. We all have them. It's just the default mode that our brains run during the day. And in a typical day, again, the number is going to be wrong here, but we all have 15,000 thoughts a day. 90% of them are negative. They're called automatic negative thoughts. And one of the tricks in psychology is to spend more time focusing on building the more positive self-dialogue to break the automatic negative thoughts with 
very intentional, positive thinking, which is really what I heard you say there, right? So you've got a folder somewhere with some of your wins. Yeah, so I had to keep a folder where I screenshot positive things people have said about my content on LinkedIn or clients saying they're really happy with things or results that I was proud of. I really struggle with this too because I'm not like a rah-rah, oh, everything is great in the world kind of person. <laughs> and I also was like, I don't really want to be like that. That's not who I am. What I started doing was a gratitude practice and I don't do it every day. I think I do it four days out of the week. I basically spend five minutes in the morning writing down all the things that I'm grateful for. And I make sure that there's always on the list things that I'm grateful that I did well. Just also acknowledging the things that I'm grateful for, that I feel like I've done well. And to just really take that moment to be like, hey, give myself a pat on the back. Because also when you're a freelancer or like you're at the highest level, there's no one there who's going to be telling you you're doing a great job. And it's also their job is to basically always push at heights where anyone else I would tell the growth rate, they would find it amazing. But internally, there was always this dialogue that we weren't growing 20%, that we weren't hitting target because we were constantly pushing ourselves. It's easy to get caught on that dialogue of just what you're hearing versus trying to build that positive out yourself. I'm always trying to focus on what's in my control versus letting things out of my control decide it. And whenever I feel like something out of my control is making me unhappy, I felt like at one point I had no control of my schedule. I just try to think like, well, I'm the one who chooses when these meetings are planned. Why don't I just group all my client sessions on certain parts of the day that I can do all those meetings in one go versus having it every single day? And why don't I make sure that on Monday I don't have any meetings so I can start the day focusing on my own things and feel like I can choose where I want to focus on what's the most important. You said something that was related to something you said earlier as well, where I heard you say, I need to balance making sure that my identity is bigger than just a person who works in growth and that a person who has a career and finding joy outside of work. I think that's something that if you work in tech, you struggle with. And for whatever reason, I find it more so in growth, maybe it's the lack of mentorship or just the fact that we're typically solving problems a lot of the day, but I find it a really important thing to try to make sure to balance out your identity as not just someone who works in growth so that when these things happen, that it doesn't dominate you in a way. And I heard you say that. And I also heard you say two other great takeaways. I just wanted to surface if there was other advice you want to add to it for folks. So you said one of the takeaways is if I could do it again, I'd get more feedback ahead of time so that by the time I presented this, I've already gotten the first draft out of the way, so to speak. And then also starting the win journal or the positivity journal. And then on the identity side, any other advice that you would add to that for someone who's in a similar position to work through? The thing I would add with that is doing this one-on-one -on -one with different people because different people are going to want different things out of a meeting. And so one of the things I do in my coaching client meetings is I ask them what success will look like in three months time of us working together. And then I also ask them what would be the reason we aren't successful. And what that brings out is also how different success looks for different people, which I think you can apply the framework to a meeting, like what does success of this meeting look like and why would we not be successful? And then the why we wouldn't be successful highlights all the potential barriers that you need to keep in mind. Are they worried that someone isn't going to be on board with it? Are they worried that we don't have the budgets for it? Are they worried that we're going to focus too much on just one thing? That would be something that I'd add. And then in terms of further advice of that balance of work versus life, one of the things I'm more conscious of now than I was at the beginning of my career is this idea of your zones. So a lot of people say like comfort zone and it's a bad thing. Like don't be in your comfort zone, always be out of your comfort zone. I'm just going to maybe say something completely opposite, but I actually think it's really good to have things in your comfort zone. 
the way I always think about growth mindset is you've got your comfort zone, you've got your learning zone, you've got your opportunity zone, each one that's stretching you a little bit further. If you think of it like the inner circles, comfort, learning, opportunity, and then you've got your panic zone, not just because you had a panic attack. I think that meeting for you and that meeting for me, like absolute panic. And when you're constantly in your panic zone, I can't sleep, I can't eat. I just feel like I'm buzzed on 20 coffees a day. What I used to think was like, get over yourself, have a growth mindset, don't be so stuck in your way. And that's horrible stuff to talk about. And it also doesn't solve it. Now I'm very conscious. If I have too many things that are in my panic zone, it actually doesn't help me learn faster. It helps me learn slower because I become very stuck in my ways. I've become very focused on, I don't want to do something wrong. It wasn't my fault. You're not thinking through. So whenever I have a lot of new things going on at work, or in my personal life, I just try to make sure I add things from my comfort zone to feel good. And they don't have to be anything crazy. They can be just taking the time to read a book that I enjoy, or I really love to cook and just spending some time cooking something that I know is delicious right now. Like I'm in Spain. I'm in a part where no one speaks English, so I'm learning Spanish. But I've always struggled with languages. And we talk also about growth and fixed mindset being different per area. Definitely have a fixed mindset about languages because I've always struggled with them and I've always been made fun of by Dutch because I have an English accent in Dutch, which sounds really weird. But then telling people I'm Dutch, it's just very strange. So Spanish, definitely opportunity, panic zone kind of thing. But then I'm also on a race bike for the first time and the first time I tried to go down a hill, I forgot how to unclip the pedal and I started panicking and I forgot how to brake and I felt within two minutes on the steep hill. There's that and I'm doing other new things. And when there's so many things like that, I think it's okay to be like, what's more in my comfort learning zone and how can I balance that out? Even if it's taking a slightly easier project in terms of a new client where you're like, mm, might not push me as much as something else. Like that's not a bad thing. When you have a lot going on in your personal life that you just focus a bit less on work, we're all human and we can't be in this panic zone all the time. And we need to balance out the different things we're doing and bring in the things that make us feel comfortable so that we can actually learn and grow in other areas. And sometimes it's, work is out of your comfort zone and then you need to find things in your personal life to balance that out. And sometimes it might be the inverse of that where you've got a lot of stuff going on in your personal life. Maybe you've got a move or a big family change or a family illness or whatever, and you need a little bit of stability at work. What I heard you say is having intention there is the key and not just feeling like you're a passenger clipped into your bike, unable to take your feet out or whatever. Yeah, I think the bike's a good analogy for it. It's a very nerve-wracking feeling, feeling like you can't unclip your shoes while the bike is sliding. And in retrospect, maybe I shouldn't. See, when you push yourself too far, I won't go. I've started with going down a really steep hill when I didn't even know how to brake properly on a race bike or use the pedals. I've heard someone else say this once, and I thought it was really good. When someone asked their career goal, they said, actually, I've just had a kid. My focus right now is being with my family and actually not growing to the next level. And I think having those moments where we, you know, admit, hey, maybe my career isn't the most important thing for me right now, or it never is, that's also fine. And I think one of the most important things is also talking to others about that, because you're going to find out that a lot of people feel the same, but we just have this shiny image of what we see in the outside world. And we see all these people on LinkedIn getting promotions, sharing these growth goals. It's easy then to get caught up of like, I'm not good enough. The most common reaction I get then from people when I share these things is like, yeah, but it looks like you've got it all together. And I'm like, no, no, just figuring it out as I go. But if we don't admit that, then we don't learn and grow ourselves or feel okay about our decision. 
or we don't set a good example to the next generation coming up who are going to go through the same challenges that we've gone through and maybe think that they're not ready or worthy or good. Have you read the book Radical Candor out of curiosity? Yeah, I have. So I've read it at a couple companies. In it, she talks about like the rock star, superstar phases of your career. And so that's kind of what you were just saying there. So for anyone listening, she talks about that there's two types of good employees and that everyone doesn't need to be a superstar and that a rock star is just as helpful as someone who is doing great work, but doesn't want to take on more. They don't want to work on the weekends. They don't want extra projects. They have stuff going on in their life and they need that balance. Then you've got superstars who want to take on more stuff, who want extra, who are gunning for promotions and that it's not binary, that it oscillates at different moments in your career. And I think having intention what I heard you say is maybe the first step in figuring out where should you invest more. I think intention can be really vague. It can be hard, like, oh, how do I set my intention? One of the exercises I did with my business coaches, she really got me to write out my core values and to think about how the activities and the things I was doing was relating to those core values. And that really helped me figure out where I wasn't being intentional about living up to those values. And where certain things were out of alignment. And I think sometimes when we get an opportunity or we feel like we should be doing something, I think it's good to go back to those values then and be like, is this actually in line with what's important to me? And is maybe the reason why I'm getting this underlying feeling of like, I don't know if I want this or don't know if this is right for me anymore because it's just become out of line with our values and it might not be the right fit anymore, even if it was in the past. Could that exercise work? for folks who are in-house as well, who are like in full-time growth roles to evaluate if things aren't feeling right, why they might not be feeling right? Yeah, definitely. I think it still works because the great thing about a growth role is you can shape it in a lot of different ways. The bad thing about growth role is because you can become a horse. So <laughs> I had a random shit every day. And Benjamin, who was on the podcast, said a lot of great things. And he said like this idea of if I don't do that, I don't have a growth mindset. He basically would just take on anything. And then I think like that's one of the reasons why we come out of line. It's not just does this match my values, but is this actually aligned with what brings me joy and what my strengths are? I think another myth is focus on improving your weaknesses. If your weaknesses are mission critical, yes, improve them. Communication skills for me, mission critical, no matter which role I was in. And I still think I have lots to do around that because I'm a bit of a blunt Dutchie who just sometimes says things without thinking. The ADHD doesn't help with that. So that's something where it's key. But like at Heights, for example, we didn't have a head of content or a head of brand marketing. We had one star at the same time as me. She didn't work out. And I was like, I'll take it on. And like the reason why I mentioned Benjamin is I think his approach is very much, I don't know, I'll work it out. My approach used to be that, but... My approach now, and again, both can be right, is more thinking, is this actually my strengths and what brings me joy? If it doesn't align with that, even if I could do it, does it make it sense? And I think in his case, a lot of what brought him joy was just seeing these new areas and exploring it. But I learned at Heights when I took on all that brand side, I hate brand marketing. It's not because I don't think it's important. It's not because I don't think it's impactful. The way that brands grow is interesting, but I hate focusing on podcast marketing and influencers and PR and social media. And I just don't enjoy it. And so I was trying to be this head of brand marketing and this head of growth because I was like, I'll help out. But like it was feeling bad and it was also hurting the brand side because you can't put brand in a growth process that doesn't work. And it just meant that the brand team didn't have the room to follow their own process and have someone who could actually teach them and challenge them 
on their work. And I was also feeding out of line. So I think another framework is what is the 90% you love, where you want to go, what you enjoy, what brings you energy? When does time pass by quickly? There's like this book called The Big Leap. And by the way, this whole 90% thing is from The Alliance, which talks about this matching of jobs with skills. And The Big Leap basically talks about what's your zone of genius? Where is it that you're better than anyone else? And making sure that you're doing stuff that aligns with that. And that doesn't mean that short term, you might not help out with something or do a little bit until you get someone on board. Like until the head of brand marketing came, I still coached those team individuals, but I let them free in terms of their process. I didn't involve myself as much and it actually went better (laughs) as a result because that wasn't what I enjoyed. So I think that's another thing I would say is like when it feels out of alignment, just because you're growth, just because you can learn everything doesn't mean you should. That's such a good takeaway. I learned this in my own career where I had all these career goals to get to a certain level and a certain title. And then I got there and I didn't like the way that it felt. I didn't like the job. I didn't like all the time that I was spending on people management. It didn't mean that I couldn't do it. And it didn't mean I wasn't good at it. It just meant I didn't like it. At the end of the day, I just didn't like the way that I felt after spending most of my day working on those things. And I don't think enough people check in on that. How are things feeling? Is this bringing me joy? It's a good reminder. Yeah. And what you also said is another key thing is the career path isn't just to manager. It can also be specialist. And that doesn't mean, again, that you don't manage people or that you're not good at coaching or helping people, but that there's different routes to go. And I think we often get caught in this managerial route, but that doesn't mean it's the only way. You can also become a specialist and really hone your craft. And even as someone like me, who's a bit more generalist in the sense that I'm not just one part of growth. I really tried to look at what's the underlying reason why growth is slowing down for DTC brands and help them find solutions to that. But I can still become a specialist in terms of the type of business I work with, the type of problems I help them solve. And the way I work, we have this idea that your title is a reflection of it. And often the best titles are the managers, but that's not the only way to go. Only in engineering do we really celebrate incredibly talented individual contributors in almost every other discipline, we celebrate people making it to people manager positions. And I don't get why that is. It's silly and it seems backwards, but it just is what it is. But that doesn't mean that you can't check in with yourself to see, am I enjoying this job? How do I spend more time on things that bring me joy? Thank you for coming on and being vulnerable and sharing some of the bumps and bruises that you've taken along the way. For folks who are listening to this and want to connect with you and engage, where can we send them? So definitely LinkedIn. I try to post at least two to three times a week content around dealing with that messy reality of growth, dealing with the challenges, whether that's around imposter syndrome, relating your growth rate to your happiness to actually like, hey, my campaigns aren't working. How can I reverse engineer this? And then I've also got a weekly newsletter called Growth Waves where I get to go one step deep into specific challenges every single week. It is more focused on DTC. And I also share a lot of recommendations there. Every newsletter has a recommendation of either a book or someone to follow. So you also find a lot of new resources there. Love that. Thank you for coming on. Appreciate the time. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great chatting again. Thank you for listening to the pod. I hope that you enjoyed the episode. If you did, I have an ask. The biggest gift that you could give me as a small business owner and as a content creator would be a review. You know the game. You can go on to Apple Podcasts. You can go on Spotify. Leave a review. That would help me 
service this content to other folks who are like you. Obviously, you should subscribe to the content if you really dug it. And if there's feedback that you have for me, folks you think I should chat with, stuff that you wish I would gloss over faster, whatever it is, I'm all ears. I work in growth. You're not going to hurt my feelings. I try to collect feedback and iterate quickly. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn at Andrew Kaplan or on Twitter at at A Otherwise, hope you enjoyed the episode and I'll see you next show.